things. Uh, in that time, they may get to Mount Sinai. God has done some major things. He split a sea so they can walk through it. He has given them fresh water in the middle of the desert, fed them. Um, they've come to Mount Sinai, and Moses has gone up four times to talk with God. Um, that one point is that that's where we where God communicates the Ten Commandments. And uh, this time, Moses has gone up, and he's been on top of the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, that should sound familiar if you're a church person, 40 days, 40 nights. That's Noah. They wander in the wilderness 40 years. 40 is a number of waiting and preparation. And so Moses leaves his brother Aaron in charge. And um, while he is up talking to God, God's giving him instructions on a tabernacle they're going to build. They're going to use all the gold and all the jewels they looted from the Egyptian people to make this tabernacle where God, God will dwell in the midst of the camp with the people, and they will continue on as God's chosen and faithful people. So now we're at Exodus chapter 32. We're going to read 1 through 14. Would somebody want to read that for us? Oh, thank you, Tabby. That was ESV. She's reading from the ESV. I'm going to put the CEV up here, and we'll compare what we like and don't like. Great. Uh, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down to the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Us, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hands and fashioned it with a graven tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people who you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn out against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn out against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent, did you bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against the people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken to them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. So we have, um, oh, I should stop that. There we go. That's what I meant to do. 
we've had uh, people freaking out with some fear. They're worried about what's going on, what uh, Moses is up to, what God is up to. Did anything stand out to you in the reading of that passage? So something that I've never really noticed before is Aaron's solution to build the path. I kind of always thought of it as like the people uprising and doing it on their own, but it's like they complain to Aaron and Aaron says, oh, here's a solution. We're going to do this thing. Yeah. Which feels surprising to me because Aaron has been with Moses when God has come to him and like has been a huge part of this process. Yeah. So it just feels like he should know better. He should know better, right? Yeah. I feel like that's kind of a, maybe they all should no better but definitely the leadership right like you've been a part of this um and yeah so aaron they come to aaron and aaron's like okay i'll make this path and then and then aaron deflects later he's like oh like jack through the fire that just came out like uh i mean it's like a sitcom here and i love it because the scripture is messy and we're messy and it shows the truth like the heroes of scripture have moments of failure and and sin and deceit, uh, which is, I think, helpful. Right. Anybody notice anything else? All right, talkative bunch. So let's start at the top. Why do you think they wanted? a god to worship why did they want an idol they said make us gods or the pop other translation could be make us a god they wanted something tangible to see to worship why do you think that is it wasn't moses taking a little bit longer than expected and so they got impatient. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. 40 days, that's a long time to be waiting in the middle of the wilderness, wondering what in the world what is going on. Definitely. I wonder if it's because that's what they were comfortable with or what they knew from being in Egypt, being in that culture. And so they were just falling back to what they knew the best. I think that's absolutely what is going on. They just spent generation upon generation in Egypt where the gods are formed and you can see them and worship them and say, this is my God. And they knew that a God had delivered them. But which God is it? And they only ever knew a God that was a pillar or a pole or a calf or a... And so for them to have this abstract God who says, I am who I am, and I can't be born, I can't be controlled, I can't be reduced to some creative thing, that was absolutely foreign. I mean, that just didn't even... That there ain't no concept for that. I mean, that's part of why the early church was called atheists, because they had this abstract idea of a God who can't be reduced to a place or a thing. 
Um, and so they reverted back to what they knew because they were afraid, they were fearful, they had confusion and doubts, and and we, that's what we do, right? Like we revert back to what we've known. And so, um, like Mark talking about being two years old and being thrown into the pool, that's a traumatic experience. And when he gets in deep water, his body still responds that way. Johnny saw a frog, and when he sees large fanged frogs anymore, he reverts back to those moments. Um, when I have angst with my church, I revert, like, we go back to what we've always known, um, which in some cases is meant to protect us, right? It's meant to keep us safe, but in some cases it's keeping us from moving forward. Um, and so we, we, at some point, we have to stop going back to where we've always been and start going forward. Um, which is what God's trying to do with these people. He's trying to make a new nation, a new identity, a new way. But they are in patience. Uh, do we ever get impatient with God? <laughs> Can you, anybody want to share a time when you were impatient or felt impatient or why you're currently impatient? Like, I'm pretty sure I can think whatever happens if I know what's going to happen. Yeah. The not knowing. The unknown makes it way harder, right? Like, just tell me that the airplane is going to crash into my house and I'll be prepared for it. Mm -hmm. But if I don't know, then it's going to cause me to worry and be anxious. Absolutely. Um, and I imagine that's what these people are feeling, right? Like, they're standing in the middle of the wilderness wondering, <laughs> What in the world is going on? In fact, they say we want a God to follow. Um, it's a, come make us gods who can lead us. They want to go somewhere, they, but the God who brought them this far is not taking them faster. Um, and so then we like to take matters into our own hands, right? We like to just say we'll do it our own self. Yeah, the way I can do it. In which case, we might not make golden calves, but we make giant messes when we get ourselves in situations uh, that are not necessarily ideal. Um, why do you think God cares? Why does it matter that God not be represented? Because it, it could, like when they say, make us gods or make us a god, it could have been, they use the same word. Elohim that they use for God Almighty. So they could have been saying, make us this God, not necessarily looking to pagan gods. Why do you think it that matters to God? Because God's obviously upset about it. Why does that why does that matter? Why is that a thing? It doesn't look like golden calf. Yeah, it doesn't look like golden calf, absolutely. Yeah, so it's inaccurate. I think that, like, also, they were, because they felt so uncertain, they were trying to force God into this image of what they had known in Egypt. And he wanted to be so much more than that, I think. So, um, 
word that she said was they're trying to force God into something different. And God is much bigger and broader and better than anything we could possibly make with our hands. And that's why the church has always resisted like God is not God is within creation but God is not creation. Um, whether that's a person or a tree or a mountain or a statue or a church building because anytime we're reducing this creator God to something smaller, we're limiting this God. And, and oftentimes what we do is then we make God in our own image and in our own ideas. And so we start saying things like, if you don't do exactly like I do, then you're not worshiping this one true God. And this God looks this way and votes this way. And, and now we've made a completely false God trying to force this great big God into something small. Does that make sense? Um, God was giving instruction to Moses uh, to build a tabernacle so that God could be present amongst the people. God wants to be known. But the, that wasn't enough. It wasn't happening fast enough. So they take matters into their own hands. And now God wants to destroy them. Um, what's interesting is um, the text starts out with Moses, the people said, make us a God um, because Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know where he is. And then they make the idol and they say, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt. And then God says to Moses, they're making a mess of it, the people you brought up out of Egypt. And then Moses is like, God, the people you brought up out of Egypt. What in the world do you think is going on here? That happened four times in our passage that you brought them out, and it's different you in each in each case. Moses brought us out. The calf brought us out. Moses, you brought them out, God says. And Moses says, no, God, you brought them out. Any idea what, what's going on? I think I, I understand maybe like the first part where the people said Moses brought us out because it because Moses is so um like he's kind of like represents the whole picture, right? Like he's in he's leading the path, right? Yeah. He's the one that talks to Pharaoh, like all these things. So I think if if an Israelite isn't paying close attention to what God is doing through Moses, then it's easy to be like, oh, Moses, he's this great man, and he, like, did all these things, and he's the one that let us out. Um, I really don't get the part where God says to Moses, and he's, I'm like, what? Don't you know you brought them out? That's where I get it. Yeah. Anybody else have any thoughts on that little back and forth? I think one of the issues that we sometimes struggle is we forget where our salvation comes from. And so when it's Moses, that's what we see. Like Moses was the leader. He's the one who spoke on God's behalf and led them out. But our salvation came from God. 
And so the beginning of the Ten Commandments is actually the first line is God saying, I'm the one who brought you out. Like that's an, we can't forget where our salvation comes from. So it shows that they're already misattributing where their salvation comes from. And if, if we start down that path, um, we're going to end up attributing our salvation to all sorts of things, which then can claim our allegiance and our fidelity and our life. Um, we forget where our hope is found. And I think that, again, that's something we still struggle with today. We think if we vote the right person in, or if we just get this thing, or this job, or this relationship, then it'll all work out. And, and that's just not where our salvation or our hope comes from. And we get impatient because we can't see where we're going. Like Brianna said, and we start clamoring for all these other things, which end up just making a mess. Um, so they want something. What brought us out? Well, it wasn't. If Moses is gone, they might have thought Moses was dead up on the mountain. Um, eaten or destroyed or abandoned them. And then God, I think God's just kind of playing with Moses at this point. Like, you've not taught them anything. They've already forgotten. You have, like, you have failed in your duty to remind them. They're your mess. This is what Kristen and I do with our children. Your child needs you, we said. Your child, like, it's we understand it's both of ours. We, we were both um, co, we're, we're co-parenting, co-creators of that child. But it's your child. Right? <laughs> Particularly when I come home and one of my kids has been acting like me, then Kristen will say, your son needs you. He's in his room. Or, yeah. So we, it's kind of like, it's your mess. This is your, you have made this. And so I think God's just kind of pushing that back on Moses. Saying, Look, it's, it's, it's your mess. Um, but God's ready to destroy the people. He calls them stiff-necked, is how most translations have it, uh, which is which is a, an old way of saying stubborn. Um, he's just fed up with these people who cannot get it. Like, I, I heard you in Egypt. I, I brought you out. I, I've done miracle after miracle after miracle. I spoke. God spoke from the top of the mountain so they could hear his voice. And they still keep making a mess of things. And so he's like, I'm done. Moses, I'm going to make you the great nation. You're going to be the new Abraham. And then Moses intercedes on their behalf and begs God not to kill the people. What are, you, what are your thoughts on that? God, are you comfortable with God wanting to just wipe them out and start over? Is that uncomfortable? Are you for that? That's kind of how I feel about my family sometimes. It's like, oh, stiff-necked people. I think it makes me feel uncomfortable because it feels like a trend. Like, if you consider the Noah and the Ark and this, but, um, I mean, God's people just be like, <laughs> wipe them out, start over. Yeah, yeah, yeah right? Which I know is not true, but. Yeah, we cannot feel that way, right? Absolutely. I don't like it. Like, yeah. okay. It's a very wrathful, angry, vindictive God. Um, yeah, <laughs> I struggle. I, I, I kind of like it. Because okay. I feel like it expresses like God's emotion. Like, it's okay to like be angry and yeah. you know, wonder what he's like. 
So we might have this view of God that God's kind of immovable and outside and not affected by our choices and decisions. And here we see God's reaction is very real and raw. And um, he cares. Yeah, passionate, yeah. Which is probably a better picture of God than this God who's outside of time and doesn't, you know, isn't bothered by us. I think we forget that we're in relationship covenant with this God. And so God sees it as, as covenant breaking, um, which would make anyone angry. Now, we don't know if God would have wiped them out, um, but God has shown that that can happen, right? That, 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 is, uh, that is a possibility. Uh, so Moses talks back to God, which is intense. Again, we don't. We sometimes think we're not supposed to do these things. Um, he says, "It says he pleaded with the Lord his God. Why does your fury burn against your own people, who you brought out? Why should the Egyptians say he had legal plan to take them out and kill them and wipe them off the face of the earth?" So he's he's like, "Oh, the Egyptians are going to talk bad about you." Like again, this is this is an interesting dynamic, right? Like we. <laughs> Why would God care what the Egyptians think? Does God care what the Egyptians think? That's not rhetorical. But... I think he cares that everyone knows what his character is and who he is, that he is the creator of God. Absolutely. Yeah, he wants people to know who is this God, this God is creator, this God is compassionate, this God. And the, the Abraham blessing was to bless the whole world. And so these are the, these are people who are meant to be a blessing to the whole world and if God's going to wipe them out and what is that communicating about this God. And so I think Moses has a pretty stellar argument here. Um, <laughs> what are the Egyptians going to think? Uh, this is not okay. And so then he gives God some instructions, which is just bold, right? So mine says, calm down your fierce anger, change your mind about the terrible things, about doing terrible things for people, and remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, whom you promised to make great nations. Calm down. How does that work? Have you ever been in a fight with somebody and you told them to calm down? I do not recommend that. That, that, that never works. Uh, some translations have it. I don't remember what yours said. Um, turn. Turn from your anger. Um, so Moses is using language that we usually use to describe how we need to come to God. Like turn around change your mind, repent, be different. Uh, are, we, are we comfortable with that? Uncomfortable with that? I just like to add a little song about talking about like that before, so. Yeah. It makes for some interesting discussions on um, 
the the amount of knowledge or predestination or um, is everything already mapped out in God's world and in God's will? Or is there room for him to change his mind, for him um, to, to do something different? For can, can I influence God? Um, I think it goes all the way back to that Brueggemann clip that you played um, three or four or five weeks ago. Um, I think a lot of times we have this view of God that, that he, is, he has already set everything into motion and there's, you know, we're just along for the ride and we just need to trust that what he has put into motion is going to work out for our good. But to me, stories like this give me incredible hope that um, God is interactive with me. Uh, God is interactive with the world. Um, he is currently hearing, um, and his, his mind can be changed. Um, so not everything is predestined. Not everything is just, here is how I say it is, and it's going to be this way. Um, I think Moses is showing us a characteristic of God that uh, should give us a lot of hope. I think so. I think that's, I think that is hopeful. God is responsive to us and with us and, and everything is not set in stone. Like that to me is good news. Um, and I think God is good. And I think God left to God's own devices is going to choose good. Um, but there's times and places where it's our action that, that make a difference. Um, one of the, there's a theologian I was reading, he talks about us participating with God and that God's not just going to actively pluck and choose and do, but he's, God's waiting for people who will respond and join into what God wills for the world. And until we participate, we're going to miss out on what God's doing. Are you going to say something? Yeah. Well, also, like, don't you think that God's goodness is by his like being angry about this and stuff too. Would he really be good if he let his people do whatever they wanted and live their life? Would he be good? Yeah. What do you think? Well no, obviously not. Right. Like you wouldn't be a good parent if you let your people do whatever they want. Right. So, like I kind of see like God's goodness in his in his anger and wanting yeah. to destroy like his people and yeah. I think that it does show, like, when you, it shows the stakes are high. And if you're going to go down this path, it's going to lead to your destruction. And so I think what God is doing is like, I'll just save the trouble and we'll be done. Now, I think sometimes the scripture is full of God talking with his game and then relenting. Like, I think God wants us to be warned and know that this is not for good. And then, like, that's the story of Jonah. Nineveh, you're going to be destroyed. And then God's like, but I care about them. <laughs> I want them to not be destroyed. And so it does. It shows that there are kind of stakes to this thing. And one of the things that we need to get right is how do we worship? Who do we worship? Where does that salvation come from? Because if we start putting that hope and trust into false things, we're going to end up destroyed. It's going to destroy our soul. Going to destroy our relationship with God. 
with our neighbor. I mean, that's that's what we're seeing right now in our, our country is we put all our hope in our politicians and, and we become, N.T. Wright says, I'm sure somebody else said too, we become like what we worship. And so we start to reflect that more and more in all our hope and we lose relationship with our neighbors and, and we're thinking we're putting all our hope and trust in this thing that is not life-giving, that did not create us, that is created, that did not bring us out of Egypt, and therefore we are gonna be we're gonna be left broken and alone and lost. Am I making any sense? I think it's I think we, we don't form our idols in golden pads anymore, but we sure post about them a lot on Facebook and give our money and time and attention to them. Um, because we revert back. We, 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 when we're afraid, when we're impatient, when we can't see what's coming, it's a lot easier to hold on to something tangible. Like, I'd rather have something to hold on to than to trust this God who I cannot see and who I don't hear speak to me the way that Moses heard God speak to him. Like, that, that's a hard place to be. But I, but I, but I, and so it's a matter of faith and trust and hope that this God is the God who has brought me freedom and salvation and hope, even when I can't hear or see or know what's coming. So I don't know if I'm just talking a giant circle there, uh, but one of the commentators said, it, this is not a passage that's meant to be resolved. We're not supposed to just be able to boil it down and figure it all out. It's, we're meant to be left with some kind of, we don't always understand or get it, but we recognize that we are like these people. And, and one other one I read, it talked about how, like, it's hard to blame these folks. They were in slavery for 400 years and, and they thought they were abandoned and they don't know any better. And, and let, they, it, this is almost a trauma response. Like, we're alone again. What do we do? Well, this is all I know how to do. But we can find ourselves in those same places. Um, feeling alone. Feeling like God has abandoned us. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt God had abandoned you? Or was not close? Or was mad at you? Or was done with you? Or was calling you stiff-necked and thinking about wiping you out? Um, I imagine there's been times when we've all felt those kinds of things. Where we go through periods of, I mean, I've gone through periods where I've been like dry as the wilderness that the Hebrew people are in. I haven't heard from God. I'm not experiencing things, and I and I'm afraid, or I'm alone, or I'm discouraged. But those times and places don't mean that God is not actually with us. These folks are camped out at the base of the mountain, and God's on the top of the mountain with Moses. And coming up with plans about how God can now dwell among the people. <laughs> uh, one of the other things with scripture is we have to understand that we have this God who starts walking with people in the garden and then pulls God's self back because of our sinfulness for our own protection. And then now is trying to come back down to be with us again. And so it starts on a mountaintop and it's gonna then it's gonna be a tent in the middle of camp, and then it's gonna be in the person of Jesus. And then it's going to be in the spirit 
that dwells within us. And so God, God is trying to bring us back into right relationship. Um, I don't know where I was going with that. But I'm sure it would have been profound and deep and need to have an altar call and life would be changed. Um, <laughs> just that we, we sometimes forget that we are not alone. We sometimes forget that the God who is revealed in the person of Jesus is not the kind of God that abandons. It's not the kind of God that we know from experience that when we screw up, God does not respond to us this way. I'm gonna wipe out Tabby because she I'm fed up. Just not, otherwise I'd be gone. Like I'd be done, right? We experience the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ, and we understand that our God desires that none would perish. And so we can find hope in the fact that even if I blow it, God is still for me on my side, wanting me to flourish. That's the other thing. God's compassion and anger, and sometimes those come from the same place, are for the flourishing of the people, not for his own sake. So what do we do with this? Does this make a difference in us? Does this matter to us? Does this apply to 2020? Is this a story that we should pay attention to? Where's the good news? What has always fascinated me about this story is what would have happened had Moses not interceded? And when do I feel urged to intercede for something and I choose not to? And what, what, what were the ramifications of that? No one would have ever known if Moses would not have interceded. Um, and so it, it makes me think, what, what am I being called to intercede for? What am I being called to speak up for and speak out for? Um, and what are the ramifications of me not doing that? Um, it, it leaves me kind of shaken sometimes. One of the things I was reading was saying that this passage should, we should take interse intercession very seriously. And like, when's the last time you got angry at God on behalf of somebody else? Because here we see Moses, like, calm down. <laughs> and like, what, what if we, what if we prayed with that kind of passion on behalf of other people, on behalf of our country? That is a giant flaming mess right now. Like, what if the church really, not just, because it's easy to be like, God bless our nation, lead our leaders. What if we were like, God, show up, do something, and we, and we put our passion behind it. Uh, I, I think God responds. I think that it does make a difference. I, I have crazy enough theology to believe that God might be at work. Um, because it says in verse 14, the Lord changed his mind. Uh, so God, God, God changed uh, in, the, in response to Moses. What else might be? 
I think that brings up a good point because like I've seen in my own life how like my own crying out to God on my own behalf has like brought me closer to God and also helped me to see how he is afterwards in my life. And like to go on behalf of someone else seems like even deeper. Yeah. Definitely deeper to go on behalf of somebody else because it's completely selfless. I mean, Moses is going to be sick and tired of these people by the end of 40 years and want them dead. But he's going to remember that there was a time and a place when I fought on their behalf. And so it definitely is a deeper, it's a place of uh, humility crying out on behalf of somebody else. I think something I'm thinking from this one is just like the Lord led the Israelites through the wilderness by like a pillar of fire and cloud through the day. And like to me, that's I'm like, duh, God is there. Like, how do you not see that? And how is it so easy for you to forget those things? But then I step back and I'm like, Okay, well, God has done like amazing things in my life, and I forget it all the time. And so, what are the things? How do I build into my life like a practice of remembering what the Lord has done, so that I don't try to turn myself or other things into an idol? Yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah. <laughs> if we forget, in the midst of fear, confusion, doubt, hard times, waiting longing for this pandemic to be over, wondering when all our church people are going to show back up, when we can hug again. It's going to be easy to revert back to what we've always known. Like if I have a bad day, I want chocolate milk. Like that's just a, it's a base biological response I have to a bad day because there was a point in time in my life when I had to stop turning to other substances and make a better choice, I revert back to chocolate milk. And I don't think chocolate milk's wrong, but if I find my comfort in chocolate milk more than I find my comfort in the God who has saved me, I'm just not, it's not going anywhere. Now I don't think it's a golden calf, but it could easily become one. And so if we forget, and so, so part of our response, I think, and part of the good news is that we just need to remember who we are, who we belong to, that this God who's revealed in Jesus Christ has not abandoned us, does not abandon us. That this the presence of God is not always palpable, but it's promised. And and the Spirit of God dwells among us, the church, the people. And God is here with us. And I think God's with the Zoom people. I'm not sure how it works with technology, but I'm pretty pretty sure. Um, we 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 don't have to be alone. We don't have to be. We can be afraid. We can be fearful, and still know that God is with us and for us and at work and active in the world, not some far off aloof God, certainly not some statue in front of us, not some thing, but the God, the creator of the universe loves us. And so there's a, there's an old priest from, uh, well, before some of you were born. And, and he says this, I don't even know how to pronounce his name, so I won't say it, but he says, say to yourself, I am loved by God more than I can either conceive or understand. Let this fill all your soul and never leave you. 
you will soon see that this is the way to find it. So remember, I am loved by God more than I can either conceive or understand. And if that's the truth and the reality that we can hold on to in the midst of fear and trauma and waiting and wondering and discouragement and loss, I am loved by God. If we can hold on to that, and we will find ourselves making much healthier, faithful choices and saving ourselves from our own destruction. And so one of the practices we do to remember is our communion. And Moses tells God, remember your promise to Abraham. It's not that God has forgotten. You can remember. We, we, we haven't forgotten that Christ died for us, but we remember it weekly. We actively participate in this to continue to remember. I don't think God had forgotten Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I think Moses is imploring, participate in it, bring it to mind, move from that place. And so tonight we remember and we participate that this God who gives of himself is on our side, is for us, that we are loved by God more than we can either conceive or understand, and that this God came and lived and taught and died on our behalf, and that's where our hope comes from, and that's where our salvation lies, and it has nothing, not one shred bit thing to do with our job or our status or our president, or if we find our hope here in Christ, and then we go out into the world to make the difference on behalf. So, if you have your elements, 